problem with a situation like Afghanistan is we just didn't really have a clear end state. Where were we trying to get to? Right? You know, there was a motivation and we got attacked. We had to do something. What does that something lead to? Uh, you know, this whole sort of idea of nation building. Um, it's kind of something that, you know, in the 90s, kind of just fell out of fashion because it's just not something to do. Right? You can't just go in to some location and change their government. It doesn't work that way. But democracy, you don't just plan a little bit of democracy to Because democracy was committed. It was committed by the people. Um, and I think this is a important statement that it's going to translate well to other different things we talk about later in the series. Well, a commitment to freedom. That's really what democracy is about. And a commitment to freedom requires a culture that values freedom. And if you don't have a culture that values freedom, democracy is meaningless. Um, and we need to be quite clear. There are plenty of cultures that do not value freedom. Right? You have a lot of cultures that value a very strict interpretation of a way of life. Regardless of what that way of life is, deviation from that is not accepted, which is exactly what freedom is. So democracy can never exist in that scenario. Um, and I've heard people argue the opposite, and it's turned out that they were just wrong. Routinely wrong, because freedom is either absolute, at least the law, but not in practice. But when you have laws that are literally contrary to the very freedom of individuals, can't be a democracy like it's it's an oxymoron it's a contradiction. And so these cultures, you know, it could never be a democracy, a true democracy, um, where there are just things that people cannot do. You know, uh, where women can't drive, where they can't where they can't property. They can't walk outside the hotline, right? And the U.S. went to a place where we were very much a limited democracy. And you could see in history uh, the challenges that it presented and ultimately what it led to, right? Led to a civil war. Because, you know, just debates over who got to vote, how you count different people and all of these things. And that's just the bottom line. We can look all over some places. There's just a lot of prerequisites to install any kind of Western style democracy. We basically need a Western style culture. You can't really point to a country that has a democracy that doesn't have a Western style culture. 
think maybe Taiwan is like the best that have to ask ourselves, well, how much of Taiwan's culture is kind of Western culture? Um, in Taiwan's a big situation. And it's small enough that it's kind of like Israel in that regard. Like it's a small um, small audience location and some of the rules change. Um, just in terms of practical enforcement of law, you talk about the island. Um, you know, Israel wasn't always what it is today. You know, they still have you know, plenty of resistance to sort of a free and open Western culture, even in Israel. And so it's real hard to point to some place that's not a Western. Uh, or some place that doesn't have sort of an Anglo-Saxon type history to have a Western Southern Odyssey. We need a bunch of places like Greece, right? Some people call the ancient Greece the birthplace of democracy, and yet the modern version of it, not exactly a Western democracy. Um, and so the whole idea of ancient Greece, just uh, this democratic peace theory, don't know what that is, and I take a quick Google, it's pretty easy, generally just, democracies don't fight wars against each other, because people don't want to die, people know that wars cost money, and if the government is out buying for people, it's the people who die, it's people who suffer, so they're never going to want to do that. And it generally turns out to be true, for the most part, there aren't really ancient democracies that really don't like war against each other, but we have to remember that democracies are not a mean um, train wreck. For the most part, like the other world elected, right? Um, so the union and the backhold party mechanism you know, theoretically involve elections. And so it's a lot more, you know, it's true democracy, a lot more elections. A lot more than having a Congress become president. And that's, I think, what should have been obvious, which wasn't. And, and but I think we've learned a lot, right? We learned a lot of hard lessons in Iraq. Uh, Afghanistan never had a chance. They never really had a chance. So, kind of circle back, what was our goal in Afghanistan? It was to make sure that they would allow terrorists base themselves on that train. Well, how do you do that? Well, we'll create a government that actually is in control of that And they will then be thankful to us because they're in power and they're free and they're democratic, so they won't want to tolerate terrorists who hurt their new allies in the US. It was just, just a sad, sad situation. And by that I mean all of the problems in the Middle East, you can even draw it to Iran and take it over to Afghanistan and Pakistan. Honestly, this is all the British's What the British did during their colonial period, what they did after World War One, and what these idiots did after World War Two, and look, we don't know, we don't have clean hands. Uh, we let this happen. Um, in a lot of ways after World War II, 
following these arbitrary lines on maps. The entire Middle East is fucked because of that singular problem. Arbitrary lines of maps drawn by essentially fucking British nobility, for lack of a better term. Like, this is really uh, shocking. The unintelligence in the manner that they went about things. And, like, it's not even just unintelligent. It was just downright disregard and arrogance. You can go read what was said about different British people throughout that whole period, you know, where they were had all the mandates and all these things and all these different places following the war, you know, and what was said beforehand, uh, you know, during the colonial period of the 19th century, where the British had the all over the world. And it's just really unfortunate. We haven't seen, like, the world hasn't recovered from that. You know, unfortunately, Middle East is dumb. Way more important than it ever ought to have been. Like, who cares? Like, if you put over again, we would know that we have all kinds of oil in lots of other places. And so, you know, the United States could have focused foreign policy on South America, and the world would literally be a different That's not where we are, but that's the problem, right? Same problem that existed when the British tried to do whatever the hell they were going to do still exists today. And it's all a result of that whole colonial period. That's really sad that we're a hundred years away from the period. And shows you what really bad ideas and really bad policy does. And again, it also shows you that you can't impose government onto a culture arbitrarily. And, you know, everyone who ever gets in a position to, to make some decision, you know, wherever they're at, they always think, well, I got, I'm I got an idea. I can make this work. I can fix it. Was, no, it can't be fixed. Generationalism is what's going to fix the Middle East, right? Um, and no country yet really has figured out that you don't change the world with governments, types of government, elections, even with wars. Change the world with generations. One generation fades away, another generation. That's how long real change takes. And that's what it's about. You know, when I say buying more time, we need more people to grow up in an environment that they didn't have an interest in protecting. A lot of these old fuckers, and like we can actually talk about this, you know, in terms of the U.S. An older person in places that they've lived under multiple different kinds of governments, right? And so, I mean, just think about a crusty old American you know, who's lived through the Great Depression, they've lived through the 50s, they've lived through the 60s, they've lived through the 70s. Just imagine all the changes just in society and culture that someone who's in their 80s in the United States has lived through. You know, and then imagine that same person in some other country and what they've gone through at that age, right? They're 
priorities and their worldview, it will never be the same as a young person growing up in a free, commercial, vibrant society. And they may be incapable, the older generations may be incapable of appreciating the value of what the younger people like, or what the younger people see and recognize as a better way of life. Uh, there's just a psychological and sentimental attachment to the way things used to be. That older people, you know, they long for days past because when they look back at their own lives, they were younger, they were, you know, able, they were probably having more fun, right? That was their pride. That was the best part of their lives when they were younger. So everyone who's old always looks back at, oh man, it was so good how it used to be. Now it sucks. But it's really not the world that has gotten worse. It's the person you get older, your skills go down, your memory starts to fade. You're not as self-sufficient in a lot of ways, especially when you start getting into you know, our senior citizen ages. And in a place like Afghanistan, or even anywhere else, technology has ran them over. Right? Like you could probably go back 50s and 60s and find places around Dubai where they just had nothing but like shepherds, tents, camels, like not an autumn, like an automobile would have been a rarity in the 1960s in some of these places in the Middle East. And now the vibrant, wealthy centers of international intrigue, I mean, right? Paul's within the world is there. They've gone from, you know, what we would consider the Wild West, or even older than the Wild West, like, you know, from colonial days almost to the modern world in like four or five decades. And their culture just doesn't change as fast as the economic situation around. So you can't expect that viewpoints on government to change because generation after generation, like I promise you that generation that grows up in high school in the modern Dubai is going to produce an almost diametrically opposed political viewpoint in a person from someone who grew up herding goats on Camelback 30 years ago. You know, the United States was sending people to the moon. They're still herding goats, right? It's important Afghanistan, same way. Now, Afghanistan hasn't caught up to Dubai, obviously, with the same kind of principles. So, why they ever thought it was going to be different, I don't know. You know, there's all kinds of psychological things about government and ideas getting, you know, institutional and undefeatable and all these things. But, that's not for us to spend hours going over it. We're here to decide what are we going to think. What do we think? What do we do? What is what is the government going to do? What's next? Um, it makes absolute sense to pull out, right? That's what seems to be the consensus on Randall. So it's not. It's almost like Randall's United up saying we don't need to be there anymore because we've kind of all learned our lesson about nation building 
that you teach a man to fish, he'll eat for a lifetime, and you give him a fish right, he'll eat for a day. The same damn principle applies to these, to these governments that we prop up, these militaries that we prop up with our own training and our own funding. Like, they got to take those bandy steps, right? they got to figure out how to do it on their own. And as long as we're there holding their hand, they will never, never do it. And in terms of buying more time, it's just impossible to say that even if we gave them another five years, that anything would be different. It's impossible to say that. And that's why, you know, the general part listen to I think, I don't know, I don't, it's hard for me, I don't want to be cynical and I'm not a conspiracy theorist like I mentioned all the time. I don't know if part of this, like, so many people are comparing this to Vietnam. I think that's a ill-advised comparison. Um, nothing about Afghanistan was very similar to Mainly because the purpose, the purpose of why we were there in the first place, not even about the similar motivations. Um, and, you know, the Taliban and the Viet Cong just not the same. There are similarities in the way that we went about this asymmetrical warfare, and that, you know, we didn't do things that militarily would have given us victories because of the humanitarian concern, humanitarian law. Like, you know, just to do it, we win at all costs. Um, Difference being in Afghanistan, you know, the combat sort of ended with us having a government that we intended to be in charge, kind of in charge to the extent we control territory. That's different from the way Vietnam is about. So it's not a good analogy. I don't like that analogy. It's disingenuous and it's not really facts based. Uh, just because there's almost, there's very few facts that involve parallels between, between Vietnam and you know, Afghanistan. I remember Vietnam didn't start because of us. We didn't go into Vietnam saying, oh, we're going to come fix this country and make it safe. The French were there before us. They kind of started the whole thing. You know, China's a little bit to blame. Russia's to blame. Cold War's to blame, right? Um, so, uh, no, no parallels to control. That's unfortunate that they've come up like that because I think some of those comparisons drive some of the you know the things that the general folks say because they want it, they don't want it to look like they want our troops and our military like to accomplish something. And we did, right? But we didn't build a new United States out of freaking Central Asia. That's not what we did. That wasn't where our goal was. Right? Um, it's not something you could do in even 20 years. You can do it in 50 years. Um, literally, the United States took three or four generations to like, take shape. That's 90 to 100 years. Right? That's how long it would take to transform Afghanistan to what, from what they were to what we want them to. It's going to take two or three cycles of children growing up. It's progressively freer, progressively more fair, more equal society. It doesn't have nobody, it never has not a single place on the planet. And that's not even news. This is not news. 
And I'll tell you why it's not news. is because we've known this. By we, I mean the world. We're human beings. We've known this. There was a reason that Germanic tribes, when they would take over, or they would win a battle against another tribe, they would murder all the men and male children because they eliminated a whole generation of competition. And then to make, I mean, it sounds really bad, right? Murdering children, murdering all the men. Well, then they raped all the women, right? Because they wanted them to be pregnant with children from their culture. So they immediately, it was literally like stealing a culture. That's what they would do, right? The men and all the culture that was driven by the males would just be wiped out. There would be not a male of that culture left. The only males who were who would ever come from the remnants of that culture were already half of another culture, right? That was how they took over people and assimilated them and melted them. Uh, you know, and from a cold, harsh reality, that makes a lot of sense, right? Same thing a lion does when he takes over a pride, right? The lion takes over the pride and kills all the children because he wants to be the one to populate the next generation. It's all about that next generation because that's what drives change. And that's important when it comes to this idea of like Afghanistan. We didn't kill all the men and the male children in Afghanistan. So why do we think that they're different today than they were 20 years ago? Because people don't change. They don't. Everyone knows this. We need to debate this. Individuals can change, but people don't change. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't want to belabor the point. I'll just ramble on here. But it's interesting that this decision to pull out was sort of recognized as, yep, it's time. Now, that could be because, you know, President Trump was just going to do it, and Republicans was going along with whatever Trump kind of said. Democrats, for the most part, have always wanted us to pull out of some of these places um, and not use the military for these things. And so it was like a weird place where Democrats would be quietly pleased with what something Donald Trump was doing. And Republicans were just going along with anything Donald Trump said with his political power. And so that might be what we're seeing now. We're just seeing this, well, we kind of knew this was going to happen. We already had sort of our moment of having to pick a side on the Afghanistan withdrawal issue, kind of when those negotiations with the Taliban almost started. And so maybe that side had already been picked, which is why it's just super quiet now when someone finally says, okay, we're, we're going out for real now. And, you know, the only ones who opposed that decision anyway were the ones who had opposed pulling out all along. That was the general, right? They got Trump to not do it. They got Trump to extend the timeline, make it a conditions-based withdrawal, which is like, those conditions should have been there when it went to the first place. Like, what are we trying to achieve? Okay, have we achieved that? Yes, now we, like, there was no defined mission. Um, so nobody's supposed to stay there. And it's another example of where Americans might be wildly divided politically other things like, you know what, we have a shared understanding, we have a shared perspective, and we actually agree on some 